This is day 230 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing Hebrews chapters 6 through 10 today. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for rescuing us from the elementary things of this world, from a sinful, pleasurable life that will amount to nothing at the end. We thank you, Lord, for giving us purpose, giving us value, and for giving us favor in your sight. We are undeserving of it, but Lord, we know that with it comes responsibility, that we need to honor you, we need to love you, and we need to obey you as you have commanded us to do. We are your slaves. Whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not, this is the reality if we are in Christ. And we want to please you. We want to serve you. Please show us, Lord, a better way. Please show us how to humble ourselves and submit to your authority. Please bless the reading of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement 
to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing, concerning priests. And this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For, on the other hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment, because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, 
through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appointed men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant within the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every one his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, 
and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, 
he took the blood of the calves and the goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it was written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he 
having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days, when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back of destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You see, I told you this was going to be some pretty heavy stuff. And this is going to be beyond my ability to teach you in about 20 minutes. So I'll do my best to encapsulate what's going on here, but this is something that you really need to take some time to study and really dissect because there is so much in here to fully understand. And perhaps I won't be the best at articulating it, but I'll do what I can. So as a reminder of what we talked about yesterday, we discovered the qualifications of Jesus being our great high priest and how he in every way is superior to the priests of before, as well as being the superior offering for sin. And in light of that truth, we need to leave behind the elementary things of Christ and go deeper into who he is. It is simply not enough to have a superficial knowledge of who Christ is. And what will happen when we dig deeper into who he is, and he shows us more of his nature and his character and the mercy that he showed upon us, it will really open our eyes to the reality around us. And what it will do subsequently is it will cause us to adjust our lives to be more holy. Because that is the ultimate purpose, and that's what God said would be the case, right? His purpose for us, his will, is for our sanctification. He wants us to be like Christ. So how can you be like Christ if you have no idea who he is or how he is superior in every way? So when we learn more about Christ, we learn more about ourselves being redeemed by Christ. And then we understand better what it's going to be like for us in the future when we join him in heaven. So let's leave behind the elementary teaching of Christ, and let's go on to maturity, like verse 1 says. And let's not go through a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. We don't need another foundation laid. It's already been done. So let's not just keep beating the dead horse. Let's move forward into something new. Get past the traditional stuff. Get past the ritualistic things the basics, and let's go deeper into the Word. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, verses 4 through 6 are heavily debated because of the way that salvation works here. Because it says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is this trying to say that we can lose our salvation? Really, it depends on your understanding of the text, as well as what traditional stance you take. So, for example, Arminians hold that 
The people described here are Christians who actually do lose their salvation. But if this is the case, it's also saying that if they lose their salvation, it's impossible to get it back a second time. That scares me. And I really hope that's not the understanding here, because that contradicts everything else in Scripture. So I don't agree with their Arminian view. That is not what how it should be understood here. Now, another viewpoint is that some think that this is referring to people who really are not true believers. They are in our midst, they are in our churches, but they have never been saved by grace. They look the part as Christians, but they do not have the Holy Spirit within them. They profess to be believers, and they have everything that we experience except for salvation itself. And so that falling away is from the knowledge of the truth, but not the actual possession of the truth. And really, I think that's more aligning with the real situation. Because there are many people who see the gifts of God, they see the benefits of God, they see the wonders that he can do, and then they'll fall away from it because they have no real investment in it. And I think this is a better view specifically because if we hold to the Arminian viewpoint, not only does that mean we lose our salvation, but it also means that the Holy Spirit will deny himself. If we were indeed indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and then we reject Christ, how can God deny himself? That doesn't work. That's incompatible. That is impossible. So, no, that cannot be the right understanding. And the second viewpoint we're talking about here would be a precursor to what is described in the end days as being the great apostasy. People who fall away from the faith. That makes more sense, right? Now, what about this one? There's one final view that people use. Some understand this scripture to be a warning to genuine believers, to urge them to grow as a Christian and mature. And if this is the view that we hold, that would be the extent of it, because we understand that falling away, true falling away, which is losing your salvation, is impossible, because we are eternally secure if we are true believers, right? But the term falling away is likely used in here in order to strengthen the argument, strengthen the warning. So it's similar to saying something like this if you were at school and you were giving an instruction to a class of students. It is impossible for a student, once they are in this class, that if he somehow is able to turn the clock back, and that's not possible to do, that he can start this course over again. You see how it's kind of a complicated argument, but that's kind of the gist of what's being said here. All students need to understand the knowledge of the classroom more deeply. So this is the view that is more proper to what we understand as being a genuine viewpoint here. It's not that you can lose your salvation, first of all, and it may not always be for genuine believers, but it could be. 
but definitely it is a warning to those that are saved to not backslide, to not get lazy and complacent with your faith, but to mature. Because will you truly fall away, like lose your faith? No. But will you fall away from doing what is expected of you? Yes. So the warning here is make sure that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. The end of chapter 6 describes how God is unchangeable, and we know this, but he also talks about how when God makes an oath, usually people make an oath to someone higher than themselves, right? Like I remember growing up, people would say it all the time, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. You should not be doing that anyway, but people would do that because they wouldn't swear by themselves. I don't have any credibility to swear by. So what do we do? We swear by somebody higher than us. We swear by God. There is no one higher than God. So the best that God can swear by is himself. And so anytime that he swears by himself, that is something that is absolutely unbreakable and is going to happen. And so when he did that with Abraham, he is making it sure to Abraham that it's going to happen, exactly as I've told you. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Those are vows he's made by his own name. So when you see in Genesis chapter 22, for example, when Abraham takes Isaac to the top of the mountain, and I can only imagine what's going on through Abraham's head, that he's going to sacrifice his promised son on an altar, even though he was promised that he was going to have multiple descendants, as numerous as the stars of heaven, how is that physically going to work? It doesn't. But God promised him that he was going to do it. Abraham trusted him to the point to where he was confident that God could have raised Isaac from the dead. And that's something that we'll read later. That is powerful. That is how much faith Abraham had. Because God swore by himself, and Abraham believed him. And so we understand that God makes promises like this, and he's good on them. He's good to keep them. Because he's God, and he's never made a mistake, and he's perfect. So if God ever swears by himself, it will happen. That much we can be confident in. That's why verse 19 is such a beautiful verse. This is the hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. And the veil being the presence of God. Because you can imagine in the old tabernacle, there was that curtain that would separate the holy place from the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. And so passing that curtain puts you in direct presence of God. And so now that Jesus has died on the cross, if you recall that when he died, the curtain was split into two. There is no longer any division between us and the presence of God if he wills it so. And so we are able to enter within the veil anytime we approach God in prayer. How beautiful is that? Chapter 7 leads us into a description of Melchizedek. 
Now, clearly, he's a type of Christ, but let's be clear that he is not the Christ, all right? So it's not like he was a man who existed in the early Old Testament who was Jesus, but not yet the version of Jesus that we know. No, it's not like that. And at the surface level, some of this may look a little confusing as to why these things happened. Melchizedek was a priest before the book of Moses was even written. So how is that possible? That's one interesting thing to look at. Another is, how can he be a king and a priest at the same time? Usually God separates prophet, priest, and king as being three separate offices. How come he had two of them? Okay, that's another interesting argument. It mentions here in verse 3 that he was without father and without mother, without genealogy. He doesn't have beginning of days nor end of days. So is he God? That's another interesting argument. So let's talk about this a little bit. So he was a priest of the Most High before there was a law, before the Levites even existed. And so what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about is because this is separate from the law, this is a greater priesthood. And this is the priesthood that Jesus belongs to because his priesthood is not bound by the law. Because remember, he died. And so when he died, he was freed from the law. The law no longer applied to him. And therefore, he is in a perpetual priesthood like Melchizedek. And if he is a part of a more permanent, more better priesthood like Melchizedek, then he's able to save and mediate on better things, on better promises. And so what it's talking about here is that it doesn't mean that Melchizedek had no parents or that he really never died or he was never really born. It just says that the scriptures have no record of that so that he can be more described like Christ. That was all the way it was written intentionally to make it more Christ-like. It was a better way for God to attribute Jesus Christ to Melchizedek in how he was a precursor of all this. So even as far back as Abraham, Abraham tithed. He gave 10% of the spoils of war to this priest king. And so he acknowledged that this man was a true priest in the sight of God, and that this man was being worthy of being tithed to. And this is Abraham. This is the one that all the people of Israel, and this is addressed to the Hebrews, they understand the significance of Abraham. And to them, when it comes to men, there really is no higher man than Abraham and Moses. So for Abraham being one of the highest men of all of Judaism, to tithe to a king named Melchizedek, that's a big deal. And I don't think that the Hebrew people really understood this. And because there's a lot of implications that can be made from this. So that's what he's talking about here in the middle of chapter 7, about how the preeminence of Melchizedek and his priesthood was compared to Christ, and how in the same way that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, he gives all of his righteousness 
to Jesus Christ because he believed God. This is a spiritual priesthood that Jesus is a part of because physically he cannot. He's not a Levite. He is from the line of Judah. But he is a better priest based on better things. And as we know, he performed the ultimate sacrifice where sacrifices are no longer needed. We don't need to kill any more animals to be cleansed of sin because Christ died on the cross for you and for me and for the whole world. And because he was truly sinless and yet he was also divine, he was able to save all mankind, past, present, and future, through one singular point in time. It had to be through the divine, because only the divine can go and transcend space and time and be able to forgive at such a level like that. So like it says in verse 27, Jesus doesn't need to sacrifice daily. He died for the sins of the people once for all, once for all time. In chapter 8, it goes into the earthly priesthood in a little bit more detail. Now, the beginning few verses here talks about the main point, right? And so the main point that the writer is making here is that a priest must have something to offer and a sanctuary in which to do it, right? The priesthood needs to have something to sacrifice, and they need a place to do it, and that is the tabernacle or the temple. Christ was disqualified from using the earthly sanctuary because he is not a Levite, right? We just talked about that. Therefore, he must do his sacrifice in heaven. So he must serve a heavenly priesthood. And of course, what he offered was himself. So by this, he mediates a better covenant. And that is the new covenant that was made in his blood like he did at the final supper. The one that we take at communion. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he literally says is, this is the blood of my New Testament. And so that is what it's talking about there. The new covenant being that those that belong to Christ receive eternal life. That is the new covenant. And it is not bound by the old law. So therefore, if we are not bound by the old law, it is now obsolete, as it says at the very end of chapter 8. It is obsolete. And whatever is obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The law is good. And that's something we've talked about already. But the law is good. It came from God. The law gave us the awareness of sin and accountability towards sin. But at the same time, when we die in Christ Jesus, we are made into a new creature. And the new creature is separate from the law. And so the law is good, yes, but we are no longer bound by it. We are no longer enslaved to it. There's a big difference. Should we still obey the law because spiritually it is good? Yes, absolutely but we are no longer bound by it. We're not, no longer held accountable to it exactly the same way as those that are under it are. Chapter 9 now contrasts the earthly priesthood in great detail, everything that the priesthood had to do in order to forgive sins, 
and then it compares it with Christ's priesthood. Because he makes it very clear that he did not sacrifice at the earthly tabernacle made with hands. He sacrificed at the heavenly level, right? And he didn't use the blood of goats and calves and all that. He used his own blood. And through that, he obtained eternal redemption for those that belong to him. And then verse 15 says, because of this, he is now mediator of this new covenant. Because a death had to take place, and Jesus himself was that death. And verse 22 is also interesting because it says, According to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So here's something that really bothers me. Is that we have the Catholic Church in complete contradiction to the word that they have because of things like this. When they commit the sacrifice of the Mass, or even the Holy Eucharist, and this is in their catechism, their laws, their rules, if you will, that the partaking of the sacrifice of the Mass is killing God over again. It's killing Christ continually to keep the sacrifice going. Because without doing the Mass, according to them, Christ's work is incomplete. He has to constantly be killed again and again and again, because if God is outside of space and time, therefore it needs to be renewed in space and time. That's not the proper understanding of that at all. But the other problem is, is that the sacrifice of the Mass is a bloodless sacrifice, and it is specifically mentioned that way in their literature. How do you reconcile that with verse 22? How can you be cleansed with blood if there is no shedding of blood? How can the sacrifice of the Mass accomplish anything if it's a bloodless sacrifice? So for both of those reasons, it is an empty sacrament. In fact, it is heresy at this point. But not only that, but it also mentions how they have to keep sacrificing all the time. Read verse 24 with me. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood that is not his own, why is it that it says clearly here that it's not that Jesus is offering himself often? So why are we doing the Mass if you don't need to sacrifice Jesus anymore? Do you see how all of those three things that we talked about that the Catholics practice here are in complete contradiction to the Scripture? You can't reconcile that. I don't know how you can reconcile that with a clear conscience. That is simply not possible. And so it is a false understanding, and it is a heretical sacrifice that is taking place. It is paganism. And it is blasphemy to think that Christ's work on the cross was not enough. That something is required of you. And what is that? Works. Trying to justify yourself by works. It is not by you to be saved. 
Ephesians chapter 2, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. That is not why you assemble in church. You assemble to fellowship and worship God. You don't go to kill Jesus over and over and over again to keep your blessings going. That's not how it works. It is terrible that many people are deceived into this. And again, I have nothing against Catholics. I have nothing but pity for them because they are being so deceived and they need to know the truth. Chapter 10 is going to encapsulate the final purposes of the priesthood. And verse 4 is very straightforward to the point. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, if that's the case, did everything that the Israelites do in the Old Testament, was it all a waste of time? If they went and sacrificed animals because God told them to, but it actually doesn't forgive anything? Does that make any sense? So what is he talking about here? What actually forgave you, then, if it's not the blood of the animal? It's the faith. It is the belief that through the sacrifice, you can be forgiven. To do the sacrifice, you had to believe it could do something for you. Because most often, if you didn't believe it meant anything, what were you likely to do? You're likely to not do anything. You don't think you're doing anything wrong, or you don't think it has any sort of effect. It's an empty ritual. So you won't do it. But if you feel that sorrow in your heart, and you go to the tabernacle, and you sacrifice that animal on the altar, knowing that you will be forgiven, that expectation that God promised you will be forgiven, that is what saves you. That is what forgave you. The faith that God would forgive you. That's what did it. Not the actual blood. The first half of chapter 10 is very descriptive as to how Jesus' sacrifice was a perfect one and how it penetrates through time and space in order to save you. But then verse 18 also contradicts the Catholic belief. Now where there is forgiveness of these things... There is no longer any offering for sin. Why do you need to offer Christ again if there is no more offering to sin? I'm just saying. So therefore, the second half of chapter 10 really puts the application back on us. Verse 23, Let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. There's a lot in here to discuss, but briefly. We need to have confidence in everything God has ever told us. Confidence in Jesus Christ's high priesthood. Without wavering, meaning that we do not lose hope. We stay steadfast. Why? Because God is reliable. He is perfect. He never changes. We can count on that. And then, with that understanding, we need to extend that to the people around us, in our church, to fellow believers, 
to where we work to love each other as ourselves, to edify each other, iron sharpening iron, and we build ourselves up together. And here is your biblical proof that you need to be in church. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. There is no substitute for not going to church. It is a biblical command to go to church. Not because you have to, but because you want to go worship the Lord and to be with fellow believers. It is a command. So there is no excuse for that unless there's some sort of medical reason that you can't make it. But we should be at church every week because God has instructed us to do so. Verse 26 through verse 31 really puts things in perspective. As If you understand what we just read, and you understand it in depth, why would you want to go back? Why would you want to willfully sin and be defiant before God? Why would you reject the truth of Christ's death on the cross? Or any other thing that God has instituted? Why would you want to reject that or rebel against it? There is no more sacrifice for sin available. He's already done everything. There's nothing else to do. So we unfortunately have a world full of people who have rejected Christ. Through Christ, the sacrifice is made, and apart from him, there is no sacrifice. There's nothing else to do. If you don't include Christ as an option for your reconciliation, then there's nothing else. There's no other sacrifice, which means there's no other way to come to God. What did Jesus say? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you reject the only way to salvation, then there is no other way. The only thing that awaits you is judgment. And that's why it says in verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Because all that awaits you is judgment. Yikes. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what does. Then from verses 35 through 38, it references how we should not throw our confidence away, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. What was promised? Eternal life. And then he quotes Habakkuk. Now, the usage of this from Habakkuk chapter 2 is to teach the person who has been made righteous by God to live by faith. The believer who trusts in God in everything needs to be able to stand through the trials and the hard times that are coming. And that is the expectation of God for us. When we get to Revelation, he's going to reiterate that uh, through the mouth of Christ himself to the churches. He's going to say that you're going to go through hard times, and if you make it through to the end, you will join me in heaven. You need to persevere until the end. Use the tools that God has given us to develop ourselves into maturity, as well as to remain in his presence when times get hard. That's the sign of true maturity right there, and that's the aim. That is the goal for your sanctification. Let's work toward that as we go through our days coming up. 
We have one more day in Hebrews, and then we will move on to some smaller books before we get to the final book. It is rapidly approaching, ladies and gentlemen. We only have about one more month to go, or less, before we reach the end of this Bible. It's been quite the journey, and I've been happy to go on it with you. And let's finish it. We're almost there. Let's get to the end. And with that, that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.